Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Cy Turner, the founder of Kodak Bikes, who have just turned 20 years old. And Cy and I sat down to chat about its history, and and along the way, we go over not just the history of Kodak and all of the changes that have happened in the bike industry over those 20 years, but we talk quite a bit about the UK riding culture that birthed Kodak in the first place, Sai's history as a mountain biker, and a lot of pretty cool stuff about his philosophy on designing bikes. And, well, I actually just today, as of recording this intro, had a Rocket Max show up for review, so we'll be having a lot more to say about that bike very soon as well. But before we get into it, I want to take a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus Spot Insurance, which gives you $25 of per-incident, zero-deductible injury coverage anywhere in the world if you're doing a whole bunch of outdoor activities, including biking, skiing, running, and a whole lot more. And to kind of paint a picture of how this is really useful, not only does it have the potential to save you a lot of money in the event of a catastrophic injury, but it also has the possibility to just help you get better care. How many of you have had the experience of having a crash and what seems like a comparatively minor injury that you don't bother going to the doctor for because you figure they're just going to tell you to take it easy for a little bit, rest up, let it heal, and charge a few hundred dollars for the privilege of getting that bit of information. I know I've been there, and with Spot, you don't have to do that kind of cost-benefit analysis because you have that doctor visit covered. Maybe they'll find a more serious problem. Maybe they'll just say that, yeah, it isn't that big an injury, but get you some physical therapy for it to help it heal up faster, which would also be covered. And you can get back on with your life not having to pay a bunch of money out of pocket to get that care or worry about what it's going to cost you to get that care. So it's a really beneficial thing and also includes all of the standard benefits of a blister membership, including being able to send me an email and chat about your next bike purchase or upgrade. So check it out at the link in the show notes and get yourself signed up. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Cy Turner of Kodak Bikes. Well, Cy, great to have you on and sit down to chat about some bikes. How are you doing today and where are you today? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Uh, I am in my home office in Sheffield in England, uh, and I'm looking out the window to quite a grey day. February in the UK, what can you say? <laughs> yes, I suppose that's kind of what that bit of the world's known for right now. Yeah. <laughs> Similar story over here, so. <laughs> well, we're just kind of interested to sit down and chat since you've been doing some interesting stuff with bike design for a good while now. And I think got some some interesting things to say about uh, frame design, geometry, and material selection, and a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, kind of just dive into it here. But to kick it off, tell us a little bit about the founding of Kodak and how you got yourself into the bike industry in the first place. Uh, so Kodak's actually 20 this year, which is pretty wild. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. So done a degree, uh, got a job in the rail industry, 
Um, but I've always designed parts for bikes. I've always been I've always been fascinated by the technical side of most things. Uh, so, Kotick started with I got a old Kona Caldera. It was like the '99, like last steel Caldera. It was in the local bike shop, and they were selling it off. And I wanted a hardtail because I was downhill racing at the time. I came out of XC racing trail bikes all of that kind of stuff in the 90s i was downhill racing to an extremely average level um and i wanted a trail bike and i'd always loved steel bikes just just always i tried some other things but i'd always loved steel bikes and i saw this steel kona i'd never had one so i thought oh I'll get that um and i put some big forks for the time i put some whole hundred millimeter silos on it and um and uh and a front disc brake but i couldn't fit a big enough tire and it wasn't really bright and there was all of this kind of stuff so just for my own amazement i started i measured it up and started making some changes and basically designed myself a frame because i knew about Ed reynolds 853 because uh, i always thought it was like a really cool like sounding material because i actually had a downhill bike made out of it uh, i had a rally downhill bike if you look up rally dho so steel downhill bike from the late nineties uh, with flame paint job. Um, man, I love that bike. Um, and anyway, so I designed this bike and I was going to get one, like I say, just for my own amazement, just get one made. And I was talking to a custom builder about getting it done. And then through the single track forum, um, I got, uh, I got introduced to Brant Richards who was on one at the time uh now does head troco makes trousers and shirts and clothing in the uk so he's like just serial entrepreneur but uh anyway brandt said oh here you've got a bit of design and it's sort of occupational hazard when you do what we do it's like you get people just occasionally emailing you or getting in contact with you going hey i've got this brilliant idea and it'll just be some you know sketch on a napkin or you know or uh, you know you know, crayons or something like that. And, uh, you know, not to piss on people's creativity, but, you know, it's, you do, it's an occupational hazard. But, but I had done a full engineering drawing. I sent him a CAD drawing. Um, uh, and he was like, oh, right. <laughs> okay. Um, and he said, well, this looks great. Um, we could get you a hundred of these. And it just snowballed from there because uh, I didn't have to give up my day job. And um, they got me a couple of samples and everyone who rode them said they were great. Um, and I thought I could get a loan and not give up my day job. And my friend can build me a website and he still does our website. My other friend designed us a logo. And genuinely, it, the business plan was no more complex than even if we sell three at full price, we can sell the rest off. Uh, and I can still afford to pay the loan back. So it just was a way to get cool bikes and and see where it led. And that was it. It was just, I was such a complete idiot about business. Not an idiot, but a complete, you know, naive about any kind of business plan or anything like that. I didn't really get properly organized for about 10 years, to be quite honest. Um uh, but yeah, that start, that's, and the, the first batch came in June 2003 and that was the soul and it got a bunch of great write-ups and we actually sold more than three um, and that was the start of Kotick. Um, 
and then we introduced uh, we did a Thai version of it because uh, it was relatively straightforward to do with the agent that I had and that went real well and then we were yeah we were just doing just bits uh, and it was keeping us in cool bikes and it was keeping me in uh, and it wasn't like too difficult to do outside of my job um, and then yeah basically by 2006 I'd been promoted to my level of incompetence at work um, by being a project manager not a project engineer uh, in charge of a half million pound technically horrible job for a really difficult client on my first ever project management gig um and it was just too much um and i went stress pop um my first daughter was born in april of 2006 and six weeks later i forgot my wife's birthday because i was so stressed i was that guy um and i was so furious with myself that i just resigned the following day um i didn't have any plan I just needed, I knew I needed to stop doing that. Um, and it was actually, this is how much of an idiot I was about business. Um, it was actually my accountant that told me that Kotick might be worth a shot because we were just sorting out the books. And he said, oh, you, you do know you've got some profits built up in Kotick. You probably, even if you make like don't make another penny, you've got like a year to take a shot at it. Um, so that was, so my last day of, my last day in the rail industry was at the end of July 2006. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm still here. I love that story. And uh, <laughs> as a fellow former mechanical engineer who's wound up in the bike world now, there's a lot about that that's pretty relatable. I mean, I've gone about it a bit differently than that exactly, but um, just kind of getting burned out and one day deciding to hit the eject button and figure it out. Definitely. I think a lot, I think particularly with engineers is you get into it because you, you like designing things and you're creative. And, and even though you're technically minded, engineers are, you know, engineers are really creative because, you know, you create the solutions within the constraints that you're given. And then, uh, and then to actually get ahead in the corporate world, you actually have to stop doing engineering. And it's like this, it's the same in almost all it's the same in almost all other professions. But um, very few people in engineering are well equipped to to handle that transition, in my experience. Um, and uh, even though we're oddly now, like obviously, I, I'm basically the product manager for Kotic, and we have eight people working for us, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a, it's such a different thing when it's yours, because that's the thing. When you're a project engineer, you're the middle manager, so you have no discretion to tell this awful client to get stuffed, because that's what you would do if it was you. Because your boss is going, yeah, but this is earning our company a huge amount of money, and you're getting all this pressure off the client and all this pressure off the people. Uh, and you're just this sponge for stress in the middle of it all, and you can't change any of it. And the difference now in running your own business is that, yeah, you have to make the decisions, but they're your decisions, and you can make them, you can own them. So that that discretion is where the, the that freedom is. It, it sort of washes the the stress out of it because you can because you can actually tell. Well, you know, not in so many words, but obviously, you know, you can tell that difficult client to get stuffed because you know it's you know or, or you can make decisions that make your life better instead of more difficult because you know so there's all of those things that mean that 
you know, I've chosen my team. I haven't had them chosen for me. So, you know, all of this stuff just makes all of that, you know, actually really enjoyable, not horrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, so at this point, we're it's 2006. We're r- roughly three years into Kodak's existence. Yeah. And now you're kind of suddenly taking a crack at doing it full time. And so what had your model lineup been like to that point and how had the sort of sales model been going and where was the company at at that moment in time and then kind of what changed thereafter when you started doing it full-time rather than as this side project um not a lot changed apart from uh just i had more time to put into being able to promote the business and we started doing a few events because I could do them like, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I could go and work a weekend and not be, and not then not have to go effectively go back to another job on the Monday. Um, but not a lot changed. Um, we would just kept uh, ticking along. So we were developing the soul. We had the beefy, which was the hardcore version because people liked the geometry, but they wanted something tougher. Um, and actually, in two, just as I start in two thousand summer two thousand six, we just got the first road rat, which was based on which was game was based on sort of soul, so sort of mountain bike fit. But it was one of the first flat bar disc brake road bikes. Um, so um, because I. I I've never, because I come from a BMX mountain bike background, I've never fully got on with drop bars. Um, in fact, to be honest, the only, the only bike I've ever really liked with drop bars is the current Cascade, uh, which is our drop bar mountain bike. So it's basically a mountain bike with wide drop bars. So I, I kind of like it. Um, but I, I've never really got on with road bikes. Um, so... I was riding this road bike to work and I said, this is rubbish. This rim brakes are stupid and these tires are ridiculous. And, um, you, you know, and the handling's twitchy and, um, and I just, I bought some cheap, you, this, this is dating me as well. There's the Mavic did these, uh, speed city wheels, which are basically they're road rims with mountain bike hubs. So you, they were a disc brake, they were a disc brake city wheel, 700 C. Um, and I saw some on the local buy and sell and just picked them up for like a hundred quid and put them in my soul, um, in my mountain bike, uh, and just stuck some old flat bars on it instead of the riser bars. And I was like, this is really good. I can stop and, and, and I don't feel like I'm going to die every time I ride down a hill. Um, and that, so it's just that kind of rider led thing that it's always been is like, we've always built. It's on our website. It's like literally the first line. It's like, it seems obvious, but it's true. We build our dream bikes. We literally go, what, you know, what do I want? What would I like to ride? You know, um, and that's where the road rat came from. And that was really good for Kotick because actually that was one of the things sort of fortuitously as I stopped, that started ramping up. And that was actually the first full bike that we ever did. I used to build them in my garage, um, just assemble them in my garage out of build kits um, because we hit, we suddenly hit a market outside of mountain biking, um, which sort of spread the, you know, spread the pool of people who were interested. But like I say, it was for, for, for nearly 10 years, it was a you really 
like unusual bike and it really stood out it won again it won a bunch of awards in like the uk press and um and man the scandinavians loved them because it had so much because i because i built it with room for big tires because why why wouldn't you um they could put their studded tires in it so suddenly they could like ride in the ice in the winter so the, the like the scandies went a bundle on road routes um and we sold thousands of them um you know, not tens of thousands, but small number thousands over like a fifteen-year period. It was it was a big model for us, um, and that just ticked away in the background. And then we just got on with doing mountain bikes, uh, and yeah, so um, so yeah, not a lot changed. We were always direct to customer. We always had to because that's where it started. It was the only way it was ever going to work. We did have dealers for about 10 years, and I was talking to dealers at that point, but the pricing model was never really set up for it. So um, in the end, in 20, I think it was about 20, end of 2017, early 2018, maybe a bit later, um, we just decided we couldn't do it well, so we were just going to stop doing it. Um, so that's when we went back to just fully direct, which is what we are now. Um, so, yeah. I like that bit of just sort of making the bikes that you wanted to be riding and figuring out how to market them and who wanted to buy them from there and sort of sorting it out to, and to kind of bring it back around to those early mountain bikes in the lineup, the yeah. soul and the beefy and kind of just curious to hear a little more about what your original inspiration was and sort of what you were hoping to accomplish like particularly that first soul before you really even had visions of this as a company that you were just, what did you want to make for yourself that was different from what you could buy at the time and how'd that go about? So I, like I say, I was racing downhill at the time. So they had, you know, 2.3, 2.4 inch proper sticky tires and they had big disc brakes and they had riser bars and they had like relatively slack head angles, you know, even back then. Um, and just shorter stems than you would, you know, than, than you would ride on a trail bike. And they just had really cool handling. And I just thought, I just want this in a steel hardtail, you know, because like that that was the thing that frustrated me about the old Kona. You couldn't get a, you couldn't put a rear disc brake on it and you couldn't get a tire bigger than a 2.1 in the back. And uh, and the, the 100 mil fork made the geometry all janky because it made the seat angle really slack and, uh, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So basically... When I set about designing the sole, I wanted to put at least a hundred mil fork on it with a seventy-three degree seat angle. Um, I wanted to run no longer than a ninety mil stem, which was short for the time. But you know, um, so then so it got a longer top tube than a lot of bikes to kind of push it back out again. Um, and I wanted to put at least 2.3 inch or bigger tires in it. And I wanted it to be disc brakes front and rear. Um, so I just wanted all of this stuff that nobody else was making. And particularly because steel was really falling out of favor at that point as well. I mean, you could get some quite cool bikes like the Cove Stiffy and stuff like that, which were aluminium. Um, but I didn't want to ride. Um, I didn't want to ride one of those because I didn't like the ride feel. Um and um and all of the old any any steel bike that was still in production was basically like a mid 90s xc bike it was just like really 
you know, it wasn't suspension corrected and it was really noodly and it had like 130 mil stem on it and it was just wasn't the one. So that that was it. It was basically nobody was making the bike that I wanted to ride. Um, so I so I designed it myself. Maybe a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm just curious for your, your thoughts on kind of what is it that has made the UK sort of ground zero for aggressive hardtails? Because sort of around that time, there were a whole bunch of companies that cropped up making and I mean, sort of still going like I mean, I've got my own BTR Ranger right behind me. There. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there are a million still, but why that in the UK at that point in time? So the hardcore hardtail became a thing in the UK because, you know, I'm, although I had, you know, I had the skills to design a frame out and, and you know, around all of these bits that I wanted, the bigger tires, the disc brakes, the suspension, all of that kind of stuff, the cool handling. Um Although I had the skills to be able to do that, I wasn't the only person with that frustration. So there was a market for people who wanted a hard, a trail hardtail, not a race hardtail. And the reason for that is in the UK, we can ride all year round. You know, it, it's grey and miserable outside today, but it's it's still like, you know, six degrees Celsius. You know, if I put a jacket on, I could go out and ride. It's not like minus 20 and it's not three feet of snow. Um and because the UK has means we can ride all year round, but our winters are quite long and they're very wet. And those early full suspension bikes up till about maybe 2000, you know, eight, 10, they basically just dissolved. Literally, you would ride them, you would ride them for one winter and they dissolved, um, you know, bearings, fittings, shocks, they just had no level of durability um, in the British climate. So people had full suspension bikes that they wanted to ride in the summer or stuff like that. And they wanted that same kind of sensibility, but they wanted something that would actually last through a winter. So that's where it came from, basically. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, and I'm over here in the Pacific Northwest in a not dissimilar climate kind of. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a reason why like the Cove Stiffy was one of the other big things is exactly the same thing yeah right i'm on board uh, obviously <laughs> that ranger as yeah. evidence uh so from there kind of where did you go with the model lineup and when did uh full suspension bikes start entering the picture for kodak uh full suspension bikes was 2007 so i'd been working on something for a couple of years um and that first one was called the Hemlock. Um, and it was, um, and I just, it was, it was quite an instructive few years really, because the Hemlock wasn't, the, the Hemlock wasn't, um, wasn't a bad bike and it had some interesting, like it was, it was one of the first bikes that had slightly more travel at the front than the rear, um, and all of that kind of stuff. And it was a four bar horse link, but it was very conventional, it was all aluminium because I thought that's just what people make full suspension bikes out of. And I was a little bit in love with Turner burners at the time, Turner five spots at the time as well. So um, uh, my namesake uh, designed some very cool bikes um, and is the reason why Kotick is Kotick and not Turner. Um, so uh, 
uh, but um, yeah, he's so so. I kind of did a full suspension bike, which had some nice qualities and it worked. But yeah, like I say, it was just and the full suspension bike. The only thing that made it a Kotic really was the geometry and the name on it. And the thing that really struck us, uh, and it, we, it, we, we sold a few, um, but the thing that really struck us was, I think we were in, I think it was like end of 2009 or early 2010, we were at a big bike show in the UK at Earl's Court. Um, and we just launched the new Soul, the new Beefy, um and uh we'd done some new colors on the road rat and there were all these like really loud like it was like bright orange bright blue like you know all of these like really big bold colors and there was this real consistency of um look it was the first time we started using the wrap decal that we used for a few years that became like a really kind of iconic look for us for us um um, and then we had the hemlock uh, like on the stand as well, and it was just an anodized black like aluminium frame with some like laser etching graphics on it, and it looked like someone from another brand had literally just dumped their bike on the end of our stand. You know, it just did, it didn't match, it didn't look, and and that whole process of um, right around then, I realised that I really needed to start getting hold of Kotick in. A, I needed to be better to make Kotick better. So I needed to understand marketing a little bit better. I needed to understand, um, I needed to understand brand a little bit better and, and things like that. And so, uh, I went on a, I went on a couple of courses. I went on one with a guy called Dave Hyatt, who used to do, who founded Howie's back in the day and, um, did a couple of other things and started working on a new bike, um, which was like a two and a half year process of, getting like we got some graphic designers to have a look at it and i tried about i tried a bunch of different frame layouts to just see what looked right versus what didn't and it was a lot of um there was it wasn't that you know form was driving function but it was definitely we had a much closer eye on what the bike looked like and and actually it was that whole process of designing a rocket that we really actually got, or certainly I got a really good idea of what Kotick is as a brand. I actually finally fully defined it and understood it. Um, and that whole process resulted in the first rocket in 2012, which was, which was back to using steel um, because it, because that's what I wanted to use. And it made sense to me for all my other bikes so why wouldn't it for a full size it's just nobody else was really doing it um and so that took a bit of development work and a bit of a leap of faith to like you know you know those first prototypes were like well he's just going to fold in two or you know just like you know you just it was we didn't know We we were trying to figure it out um and but the main thing was that it had those things that made it look, made it a Kotick. It looked like a Kotick. Um, it would sit in the lineup. Um, you know, it had, well, it's the, it's the, and it's those five things that we still talk about with the brand. It's like, it's, you know, it was, it was tough because it was steel, but it had great ride feel and it had clean lines and it was, you know, and it was interactive and it was fun and it was, 
it was all of these things that were just like this is a this is a Kotick, but it was that but designing that bike was what actually finally made me realise what that is. But like I say, I've been doing it nearly ten years before I actually figured out what Kotick was. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's been an adventure. And on the subject of steel full suspension bikes, I mean, you just sort of said that you thought it made sense and was coherent with the rest of the lineup and what you're doing with the brand, but. Tell us a bit more about why you think it makes sense as a frame material for full suspension bikes and what the thinking is there. Okay, so it's exactly the same thing that makes it great in any other bicycle because it is, you know, it is tough and durable and repairable. And it is, you know, it's one of the lowest impact materials that you can environmentally that you can make a bike out of it's it's completely recyclable the the steel we actually a lot of the steel we actually use is already made from recycled stock so so all of those things make it a great material but that same thing that makes road you know steel road bikes feel great and steel hardtails feel great that 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 give along the length of the bike that 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 way it breathes with the trail is 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 just as apparent in a full sus bike it's surprising but it is um and it means that you get this this lovely give and go across particularly across cambers and routes where the bike will work with the trail instead of trying to you know instead of trying to batter into it or chatter across it so yeah that's that's the reason why i like using that's the reason why I like using steel for, for uh, full suspension bikes and any bike, really. And so where did you end up with this first generation rocket frame? What changed apart from frame material from the Hemlock and what drove it? Uh, well, it's totally new. Well, it's totally new suspension layout because right right then we, we, were, we were still making, we were making occasional frame sales over in the USA and Canada and um, the, 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 the horse link pattern was still enforceable at that point. So I needed to move away from that. But because of what I'd learned about suspension up to that point and the fact that the, the way that the hemlock had been designed and the way I liked it to work, it was actually really straightforward, I realized, to make the pedaling performance and the anti-squat and all of that kind of stuff with a, with a swing arm. Um, that would work pretty much exactly the same apart from having slightly higher anti-rise. Um, uh, and actually the, the braking performance on the rocket was better than the Hemlock. Cause I, I, I remember getting some prototypes where I, I, I got the, um, cause they were quite long link, the original prototypes of the Hemlock and actually they had horrendous brake jack. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's not just a horse link. Isn't like a magic bullet for brake performance. It does depend on where the pivots are. Um, but, uh, and then I needed a linkage cause I'd always use fairly, I'd always use very like progressive suspension curves cause I liked the feel and that that gave to the bike. So I needed a linkage to drive the shock to, you know, to give me that. Yeah. And that was, that was it. So that, so the suspension turned into drop link, which is what we still use um variation of anyway and then the geometry was um the geometry was based i I developed it from the hemlock just because the hemlock had this massive like big oversized head tube so i i got and we were still on one of my eighth inch steer of forks there so i was like i had like up to like a three degree angle set so i was just like just playing around with with it and actually just almost came across the almost came across the geometry by accident because i'd 
I'd forgotten to add a flip chip part into another bit of the suspension and gone for a ride with this angle setting um, and sort of and had one of those like you know sort of light bulb moment kind of rides going this is absolutely you what is what on earth is going on with this bike and I got back and I realized I'd not put the like the other bit of geometry correction in so basically it was just full slack um, and I'd been riding this bike with like a 60 five and a half degree head angle and a relatively low bottom bracket and I hadn't clanked my pedals all the time and it was actually really it was really fun and um so yeah so that was where that was that was sort of that little happy accident was where we got to with the with with the geometry and um so yeah it was pretty progressive for the time I mean it, it wasn't super long but it wasn't short and it was like you know with a 160 fork it was like 65 and a half degree head angle which in 2012 was pretty pretty out there <laughs> um uh but yeah again it just came back to that whole thing of you know the pre the hemlock had been like an exercise in received wisdom and that so everything i did about the rocket was like almost not quite first principles but it was almost but it was always going back to school trying to go back to square one and trying to not look at what everyone else was doing, but just try some things and be a little bit more open-minded. Um, and that was, that was where it, that, you know, so that, um, but, and it was, it's funny because even though everyone always focused on the steel and still does on our bikes, um, and it is, a, it's like a real intrinsic part of them. For me, it, it's almost like the least interesting part of our bikes because the steel, the, the steel gives it a look and a feel and all of that kind of thing. But actually, the you know the the, the geometry and the suspension feel and the you know the, the, the kinematic and the, the the way they ride and is is it's you know the steel is almost like a it's like a secondary thing. You know that and that was the same with that bike. It was like yeah it's steel and that's what everyone was talking about but actually it was the, it was the geometry and the kinematic which made it ride real well and that was that so um you know and it had and it was although it was sort of fairly progressive for the time that's the other thing is is that it's not like it's you know it didn't have like a 20 inch rear wheel and a 20 you know and a 32 inch front wheel or you know it's actually none of our stuff is weird it's not, you know, you know, I don't like being called a niche manufacturer. We're small, but we're not niche. We don't make weird stuff. We actually make, we make very cotic versions of relatively mainstream products. We have an enduro bike and a trail bike and a hardtail and a gravel bike. And, you know, we don't make a, you know, a, a unicycle or a, you know, or something, you know, weird. We, we just do, we just do, you know, we just like doing, you know, pretty cool stuff in relatively conventional market niches. Something that you kind of touched on earlier in that answer that I just wanted to come back around to is that regarding sort of suspension layouts, generally speaking, sort of not thinking about the finer points of exactly where all the pivots are located, like you said, but there's a really good note on the website about horse link bikes. And it gets to something that I think sort of the bike world and consumers, I think have, started to understand this and it's gotten better on this front than things were kind of a few years ago. But I think a lot of people have a very specific idea of how a given suspension layout 
rides based on what a specific implementation of that layout felt like that they've been on felt like. And so, for example, you have this like, you know, like you said, sort of having a horse link bike does give you a certain amount of as a designer more control over anti-rise independent of other stuff. But that doesn't mean that you're going to inherently arrive at a particular anti-rise curve because you've got that layout. And, you know, that's true for really anything that you can think of more or less. So I just appreciated that little tidbit as I was sort of reading through some stuff on the site and prepping for this and uh, just a good note to hammer home, I think. Definitely. And it's one thing that I find, I still find because we're still, you know, we're like 10 years, 10, 10 odd years to nearly 11 years into Dropwind now. Um, we still get that thing of it's just a single pivot. Even this year, we had this amazing write-up on, on on one of the big big websites, and it was a, uh, and 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 even like you know the, there was a little there, there was a sort of undercurrent of it even in the test, but it, but certainly in the comments, you know, oh, I had a horse link, I'll be all over this. Or like stuff like that, or oh, it's just you know, it's just a single pivot. It's like we don't do it, you know. It's like it's really patronising. It's like oh, little brand, pat them on the head, little brand with their single pivot. It's like I, I, I didn't do it because it's easy. I did it because it's like because it's good. <laughs> um, and it's not just a single pivot. It's got you know the linkage and the kinematic is like a huge part of of what it does. So. So I find that a bit frustrating because that marketing message has been smashed home for 30 years by millions of dollars of specialized and other people's marketing spends. Um, um, I mean, I'm, it's not throwing people under the bus or anything like that, but really, but, you know, there's a reason why Yeti have that slidey slider in their bikes and yeah, it makes great suspension, but it's mainly because they can say, this is ours. Aren't we clever? It's marketing. Um, and, you know, there was a reason why there was a reason why Santa Cruz bought the VPP pattern all those years ago. And because they made just single pivots um, in quotes. Um, I had one of those bites. I had a bullet. It was ace. But, it was, <laughs> but, but you know, it's. Um, that that thing of but then obviously we're a direct sale brand we sell all over the world so that's you know so up to a point I, I sympathize with the consumer's um, point of view because they're trying to hang some they're trying to hang or frame where your bike sits in the market based on a photograph and some geometry because the vast majority of people who buy our bikes don't get a chance to ride them. Um, and we'd sort of try and get around that with things like the, you know, love it or your money back, you know, where people can, you know, as long as it's not ditched, people can ride it for a month and, you know, buy it, ride it. And if you don't like it, send it back. Um, so we, we sort of try and do our best to get around it and we try and do demos, but yeah, I, I get why people do it. Um, but it doesn't make it any less frustrating for someone who builds quotes just single pivot. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that all very much makes sense. And there are a lot of different ways that you can implement a suspension platform that 
rides really nicely. And so I am curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the particulars of Droplink as you have it implemented, though, and sort of what your goals are for tuning it. And you also mentioned some stuff on the site about the relevance of pivot placement and sort of general layout to frame stiffness. And so I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that aspect of things as well. Okay. Um, so when I'm, so when I, when I, when I go about trying to design a frame, I've got an aim to get with the, you know, with various assumptions for central gravity and all of these other caveats. Um, I aim to get the anti-squat in uh, 32, 52 gear um a little bit below uh 100%. So because it's it's one of those things where theory and practice are not necessarily aligned because everyone would say oh you want loads of anti squat to um you know to you want you need loads of anti squat to you know make it pedal real nice and all of that but then the trade-offs with other things like the chain, the pedal kickback and the chain feedback and uh, all of these other things actually make it, um, uh, I mean, interesting. I was playing around with it on a short travel bike um, fairly recently, just changed the changed the pivot point to get like, uh, uh, you know, not, not like a savage amount of anti-squat, but like more than, you know, much more than 100% because uh, it was a short travel bike. I thought, you know, that'll make it, you know, peppy and stuff. It was awful you know it was just like it, it you know extended under it extended under load and then you got that suspension bob thing because what happens when you get a lot of anti-squat and this is one thing where like you can dial in a lot of anti-squat without a lot of without a lot of chain line offset on the instant center which you, you know so this just becomes a thing where tuning a single pivot is a little bit more subtle than choosing than tuning a like a four bar setup or something like that, but on 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 the platform that we have. So the th- so the thing that you get when you have a lot of anti squat or a lot of pedal induced chain stiffening is when you press on the pedals, it stiffens or even slightly extends. That and then when you go through the dead spot, the chain tension goes away and you drop, and that's what gives you that bobby up and down you know, like inchworm kind of feel. Um, and particularly because it was a short travel bike, you know, sort of lighter, shorter travel shocks are pretty limited in, you know, in their setup windows. They're, they're not very sophisticated. I mean, what I actually managed to get it riding okay by by hitting the seat tube with a hammer until I could fit a DVRIL from Cane Creek because that has actually got proper damping and then I kind of calmed it down and could go and do a bit more learning. But it was, um, yeah, it was, that prototype was, uh, we <laughs> we call it, hand, it was hand finished. <laughs> um, so, so what you get by, so what you get by, by my normal approach of having a little bit under 100% is that, even though you get a little bit of uh, compression of the suspension is under chain tension. Um, what happens is, is that that that's released as you go through the dead spot. So actually it's easier to keep a smoother 
you, you know, you don't get that. It, it's not like it does the same the other way. It's just, it's like the suspension is, is moving in phase with your power fluctuations and your, and the weight of your legs going up and down. Whereas with a lot of anti-squat and a lot of chain extension, the suspension's moving out of phase with it and you're just bouncing up and down. So that's, so I always go for a little bit less than a hundred percent because it gives kind of like a, a slightly soft pedal feel. But I like that because for technical climbs as well, I don't think like, I, I, I think the, the, the suspension being wanting to get out of the way of the bump rather than like dig in is, you know, is, is actually the, is actually in, in my, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a more, um, you get a more traction rich kind of feel through the pedals and you can feel that the chain pull is, you know, the feel through the pedals is just a little bit nicer and a little bit more um, transparent and easy to read. Um, but, and I can give you graphs of what that looks like in terms of anti-squat and pedal kickback and all of that kind of stuff. But ultimately all of that like hand wavy stuff I just talked about of pedal feel and confidence in the bike and, and how it feels rolling over a bump that's the that's the art of it and the preference of it as well ultimately it's my preference as a bike designer i think this is the best way to do it and luckily i get i'm in a position where i get to uh build bikes that ride like that and then see if other people agree with me um and other designers have other things that they prefer and that's why bikes are different because ultimately it comes down to preference unless you're actually against the clock which almost none of us ever are um it becomes down does it feel nice to ride is it fun to ride and they're always the things that i come back to it's like you know i i very rarely you i use data acquisition on my suspension so that i can set up the bikes and um see what the balance is like and you know play around with settings but I almost never use timing because it's just not of interest to me because I'm not interested in riding a fast bike that feels horrible. So um, so that's anti-squat. Uh, in terms of kinematic, so the, the frame rate, I like quite progressive frame rates, which are... They're, they're less required today because shocks are better, but they were very required 10 years ago because shocks weren't. Um, so, but you know, even then, um, like I, I go for some, I try and get somewhere over 20% progression rate. Um, some of the bikes have got 20 up to 27. Um, because it just gives this real nice soft off the top feel and it just works nicely with air shocks and you can make it work well with coil shocks. Coil shocks, like slightly against what people expect, coil shocks actually work a little bit better with more linear, um, more, you know, slightly less progressive because um, they've got so much support in the mid stroke. Um, but from my preference is that soft, supple off the top feel um, and if, you know, and if I never get to use like the last two millimeters of travel, then, you know, so be it. Um, so that's, that's where I come from, from that point of view. Um, but then you're always constrained by 
you're always constrained by things because so like the Jet and the Flare Max currently have about 18% progression because that was all I could manage to get in on those frames when I dropped the when I dropped the pivot point of the link of the of the seat tube link so that so on the drop link you've got a pivot through the seat tube and that's that's your that's your hard stop for dropper post insertion and the big complaint on the earlier bikes was that the dropper post insertion wasn't really enough for smaller frames and it probably wasn't really you know certainly you know they were designed you know five six years ago when 150 was a long drop seat post um so I compromised slightly on what would be my usual preference for frame progression on those bikes because it's better to have the increased usability of more seat post insertion. So most riders would choose more seat post insertion over an extra two or three percent, you know, frame progression because most riders aren't a professional princess about stuff like that, like I am. Um, so uh so that's so so there's always these so while you've got your things like laid out in front of you this is how i want to do this this is how i want to do that this is how i want to do the other you've always got these other things pressing down on you saying right yeah you can't achieve that because within the constraints of our current construction and the way we do things this is how it has to be to make this better for the rider in a different how about the little bit about sort of frame structure and stiffness tuning and kind of you've talked a bit about having sort of fewer pivots between the rear axle and the mainframe kind of along the chain stay as being relevant there and how do you think about all that stuff and how do you go about just designing a new bike sorting out how stiff you want the frame to be in general and that sort of stuff it's all been done in relative terms it's like we needed to when we made the rear ends a little bit longer uh, for the bigger wheels, we wanted to keep it as you know similar stiffness to the twenty-six inch bike because that worked. But I couldn't tell you what the I couldn't tell you what the actual number was for the torsional rigidity for those frames. Um, and then we did you know we then after that we got to a point where we were doing enough volumes that we could go for forgings instead of CNC parts for the swing arm. So. So that iteration was, well, how can we make this work better to make them look nicer and make it easier to make and more repeatable and all of these and all of these things whilst maintaining the, the, the stiffness. So, so yeah, I don't have a really strong answer on that because although I like bikes, again, it comes down to feel. I couldn't tell you what, a, I couldn't tell you what the, you know, Newton's, you know, degrees per Newton millimeter is or new millimeters per degree would be for a frame that rode badly versus one of my frames versus a stiff frame that I didn't like. Um, but so, but that's where the ride testing comes in, and that's where building the prototypes comes in, where you try different tube thicknesses and you try different, you know, things. I would say at the moment now is that because biking has progressed you know just general trail biking not just enduro but general mountain biking has progressed to the point now where we're we're definitely building the frames with you know strength is now the driving factor 
and the stiffness you know the the stiffness comes out of it almost almost afterwards because people are doing some wild stuff even on like 140 bikes um and so you know and we definitely got a you know a little bit burnt by that you know a few years ago with the certainly with the early long shot bikes is what people were capable of doing on them um and so so these days it's it's an element of building you know you build the frame strong enough for what you need it to do and then you ride test it to make sure it's not you know is you know is it you know is it chattering your teeth out but because what we've tended to do is is keep the um keep the tubes a similar outside diameter and, and increase the internal thickness so in engineering terms that's not as efficient because you end up you know you could end up with a stronger you know you can end up with a stronger lighter tube by going bigger and thinner wall but you also get stiffer out of that as well that's the that's that's why that equation works so we keep the the, the tube sizes fairly similar to what we've used for the last few years and if we need to make the frame stronger we make it thicker so whilst it would add a few more grams compared to going to a bigger size um it, it does keep the stiffness gains um it does keep the stiffness gains as a result of the thick thickness of the wall you know smaller um so that but in terms of the overall stiffness um the main the main thing i did was use a linkage on the single pivot or you know on the single pivot layout i, I needed that for the for the for the, to get the progression rate that I wanted, but I did also want to tie the frame to the seat tube in two places. So that's um, you know that's something that I definitely um, you know that's something that I definitely found. But the interesting thing I find sometimes is that like you can you can, again it's these like happy accidents that you learn along the way is that um, uh, you can end up you know I I remember riding a um, I was riding a prototype and I'd not done the, um, I'd not done the pivot, uh, the, the, um, the linkage clamp bolts up properly. Um, and it felt flexy, you know, I could feel it like giving through corners. Um, but, but it actually had a ton of traction. So you, you, you wouldn't want to ride it in a bike park, you know, where you were giving it big, you know, supported turn loads. And I can see why stiff bikes would work there real, you know, in those locations real well, because you're just putting these enormous constant loads into the bike. But I was riding at Revolution Bike Park when I did that. Um, and, um, you know, just really chattery, rooty. Um, and yeah, I could feel it in the bike. And it sort of made me think, oh, what have I done wrong here? But it, it was actually, you know, I could see why people might see that that was a good thing in certain situations. I can certainly see why some of these downhillers are running their spokes. So, you know, so loose that you can, you know, that you can waggle them, you know, kind of thing. It's that, um, you know, it's, I guess it's that way you draw the line. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not uncontroversial to say that there is certainly such a thing as too stiff a frame for some applications and, you know, like anything, there are trade-offs and, you know, there's sort of a prevailing thought that, oh, stiffer is probably better, right? But probably only to a point. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
I, I've never been the, I've never sort of subscribed to that particularly just because of what I do. I'm, I'm very much like in, you know, enough stiffness is just enough. And particularly, you know, for an off-road vehicle, um, uh, that's, that's definitely my opinion on it. And it's also, our bikes are, you know, our bikes are born of us and our location. We, we don't ride bike parks. We, we've only got one in the UK and it's four and a half hours drive away. You know, you know that's that kind of, you know, that, that, that is that kind of nature. Um, we ride natural, rocky, technical terrain where traction, you know, where traction is a premium and confidence in the bike is a premium. They're, they're the things that we want out of a bike. Um, so, you know, if that, and, and I'm sure that that's the case for a bunch of people, but if, if it's not, if you're just, if you just want to smash park laps, then, you know, go and get something like, you know, go and get something real stiff and overbuilt, like a, you know, like a, you know, like a Geometron or a, you know, a transition or something and just, you know, go and, you know, have at it, have fun. <laughs> that kind of sums it up for me too. It's just like they're, it's trade-offs and different things are going to work for different people. There's no yeah. one size fits all right answer. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. How about just your take on build specs and the sort of unusual degree of customization that you offer in those? How did you arrive at that model? And tell us a bit about how you manage that kind of stuff. It came about because that's it's just a development of what we've always done. Um, because we we grew out of being a frame only manufacturer, you know, sort of bike brand. Um, and we realized we had to start offering bikes. Um, but the only way we could sensibly do that in the volumes that we could handle and from a cash flow point of view was to still keep ordering frames and just buy smaller numbers of parts and assemble them in the UK because it just meant that instead of having um, you know, fixed boxes of multiple thousands of pounds worth per box, you know, with, with someone else's assembly cost like baked into it, just stuck on the shelf. Um, it meant we could just be a lot more flexible and that just, that just seemed to make more sense to us when we were smaller. And it's just grown out of that really is that we just, um, we, we don't, even at the volumes that we're at now, um, you know, we can we can make changes for people, and it, and it never made any sense to us that like you know um, people buy a an off the shelf bike and then immediately put the tire, saddle, and grips in the bin. You know, they, these are things that have taken energy and and you know and effort to make and. And just to put them straight in landfill just was seemed wrong to us. So we always give people the option to, you know, to to leave things off if they don't want them. We would much rather keep them on the shelf, um, than you know, and, and have someone use them and appreciate them than, than than just them sit in your garage or go straight in your bin. Uh, and we'll give you a bit of money off for that. Um, and we we're also we're not. You know, because the nature of our brand, we are a, we are, we don't tend to attract that many 
you know, um, relatively novice customers. You know, quite the opposite. Our customers tend to have a pretty good idea what they want. Um, and they just have a budget that they need to keep to. So giving them an option to just choose an SLX drivetrain with an ultimate level rock shocks and some tubeless tires instead of just being stuck with the mid-range build and then trying to sell all of the mid-range stuff off on eBay to try and fund all of that stuff. You know, it's um it just made it, it just made more sense to us to to keep it under control in the UK because it gives us a level of flexibility. Um because we you know realistically we'd have to bake in hard specs for like over a year and then it would all be sitting on the shelf and it would all be tied up and then um so yeah it, ju- it just doesn't give us the agility that we need and it doesn't give our customers exactly what they want either it's it's actually because that's the other thing is once you once you actually set up to assemble in the UK or wherever you are you know in your facility um it makes no difference whether the customer chooses you know that drivetrain or those brakes or that it's just a pile of bits that gets turned into a bike so there's so there's no as long as you know the, the cost is in stocking the stuff but it's not as high a cost as having the fixed bikes in stock and the cost is in managing the database and sort of t- talking to the customers but then that improves the customer experience so that feels like something that's worth investing in. Um, but in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, you know, a bike's a bike's a bike. You know, it's just because just it's got Eagle GX instead of XT or because it's got Magura brakes instead of Shimano, it's just still a bike. still just goes together in about the same amount of time. So it doesn't actually cost us any more money to do that. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that, that's why we do it. It's just, um, it's, it just works for us and it seems to work we think it works better for people it's we think it's less waste and we think it's lower impact and that's what we're trying to be better at as well yeah i mean and i haven't personally bought a complete bike in ages for largely that kind of reasoning i've you know i've got some specific preferences about what i want on my bike and I'm generally inclined to piece something together myself rather than going with a an off-the-shelf spec and then changing half of it and so that uh that model makes a lot of sense to me and i guess that's maybe a good time to tease too that um i've got a rocket max on the way for review with uh kind of that exact build you just talked about slx drivetrain but high-end suspension and kind of a sort of most bang for buck high performing setup that isn't just throwing money at every bit on the kit and uh pretty neat option yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to get the bike out to you because it's um because it's uh it's uh it's kind of that um we've we've sort of gone against cuz cuz we don't need that that sort of showroom appeal to not necessarily well-informed customers. You know, that whole well throw an XT rear mech on it. Um, you know, doesn't you know that this is like the opposite of this is the opposite of that we've gone for our uh you know we don't go you know we can't make things work going like below slx in terms of a you know a budget build but 
Um, but yeah, it's going to have SLX, you know, SLX drivetrain. It's going to have Bagheera MT5s, um, which is these amazing four pot brakes, which just which are amazing value. Um, and then we're going to put some ultimate spec Zebs on it and a coil Kitsuma uh, and some, you know, some tubeless WTV tires and all. <laughs> so it's going to be like, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun because it's going to it's going to be that whole thing of putting all of the money where it counts and then uh, and seeing what you. So. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be good. I'll be really interested because I know you, you've got a Geometron as well, haven't you? So, it's uh, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what you think about that, because it's like um because obviously I don't I don't know what's way where your geometron's at at the moment, but it's it's going to be, I guess the Rocket Max is on its way to that kind of, you know that that kind of geometry. It's not quite so. Uh, um, yeah, it's not all that far off though. Uh, degree in head tube, chain stay length's about the same. Bottom bracket's a little higher than the Rocket Max, but yeah, it's really not not wildly different. So you've so you're running like a sixty two and a half on your head angle on your geometron, are you? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's cool. That's interesting because I, I I like play around with you know ever since we did long shot geometry and and you know we went long and we went slack and particularly on the Rocket Max it's always had like this sixty three and a half degree head angle, um, and that's the bike I ride. That's my that you know that's my favorite you know personal bike all all through those generations. Um, I've tried. I've tried slacker and I just can't quite, I, st- I just keep coming back around to this, you know, for that application, for that kind of bike, the, the 63 and a half for me is just, so I'm interested, like what, what, what terrain do you, what terrain are you riding to where, where you can really switch on that, that, that's that slacker front end. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got some properly big, steep descents around here. I mean, it's, a lot of my rides involve a continuous 3000 foot of elevation descent and a lot of it's pretty steep. So, um, I mean, I do think that if I was to sort of have a full custom geometry version and change numbers, I would go a smidge steeper than that on the head tube. Um, I've arrived at that setup because it's kind of what is working for me with a lot of, you know, it's not like all of the variables are fully independent. And so that is overall, working the best but i i certainly would go slightly steeper rather than slacker on that if i was to change anything um but yeah i mean got the got the hills to make it work and so <laughs> no that's uh no it's, it's it's uh i remember it being one of the like slightly sort of light uh, one of those other slightly sort of light bulb moments with the with the long geometry and the long shot um is that i was actually riding um, I was riding with my kids years, a oh, while ago. It must have been 2016, 17, something like that. Before we'd actually come out with the Rocket Max Gen 2, which was the first one with the really slack head angle and the long length and everything. Um, and I had some kind of variation on that, which was not quite as slack as that, but pretty out there, you know, well into the sort of 64s. Um, and I went riding with my kids around this local uh, trail center a little while away. And it's just one of these little woodland single track things. Um, and I was just riding that bike cause that was my bike. And that was just what I pulled out of the garage. Um, and I was like, Oh, and you, and it is the flattest place. It is just, you know, it's just, there's no gradient to it. It's all like little, just gentle like turns and then, 
Um, and just this is absolutely fine. This is absolutely fine. I don't have to ride, but you know, this isn't. You know, I don't have to be riding down. You know, riding down this. You know, off the edge of a cliff with my hair on fire to make this work. It's just that this is absolutely fine. This is just my bike. It just and it and it just kept throwing back to that first time. Um, I started playing around with the long geometry after going to see Chris Porter talk about it uh, in Sheffield a few, uh, oh, years and years ago, 2015 maybe. Um, and and I know Chris, Chris pretty well, so he was and he was just like, just just go for a ride, just take it. And I literally I rode his geometron around the car park in the dark, and and it was that it was just that 30 seconds, and I was just like, oh, it's just a bike. And people just get so like you know the you know received wisdom and like you know oh that couldn't possibly work and all of this and that's it's one the one thing I've really tried to be more open to is not be grumpy engineer about a lot of this stuff. If someone's got a cool you know interesting new idea, don't dismiss it until you've actually tried it. You know if you don't like it and you know you know and or or you, you know it's a load of garbage at that point. You know once you've actually tried it then. You know, then fine. It's that that's that's what you think, but 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 don't don't just be cynical about things. Um, you know, try them. Be excited about new things. It's actually, uh, you know, it was uh, it's um, makes life more fun. <laughs> you know, because you're just like you know, you're not looking at something with it. Oh God, not another thing. Um, it's you know try it if you get the opportunity to and if you you know you, you know might you know you might learn something um so uh yeah and that that's all that's partly partly chris but partly um yeah we got about 10 years ago now like kotick nearly got put out of business by the 27 and a half inch wheel revolution because i just properly put my head in the sand about it just fully this is stupid. Why are you bothering? And oh god, this is ridiculous. And I went to a Eurobike in 2013, and it was just everywhere. I, I felt like I'd been mugged, and I was like, "Oh dear, this is really a thing." And we developed a we developed a Soul 275 in about four months, the fastest I've ever designed a bike. You know, designed and developed a bike because <laughs> it was just like, "Oh my god!" And all of that was off the back of just me being super grumpy about it and you know in the cold light of day we probably didn't need 275 we could have just left 26 in there i mean it's one of the more cynical moves in the bike industry but ultimately the 275 bikes were better than 26 inch bikes you know whether it was worth all of the heartache you know that's open to debate but they they were better they, uh, so you know be open to it you know it's uh, and that was the same thing with long geometry and you know and uh, all sorts of other things i've you know had a play with so uh, yeah it's um yeah it's it's just yeah it's nice to be trying to be open-minded about this stuff well so si, i think that's a pretty good note to wrap up on here and uh certainly fully in agreement on being open-minded to trying stuff and not writing off the weird looking thing you saw on the internet because you've because it looks weird and different so uh here's to that and i'm really looking forward to getting on that rocket max in hopefully not too long here and just thank you for the chat it's been a lot of fun and been a really good one so very much appreciate it thanks david all right 
That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Cy for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week with a really fun conversation with the one and only Phil Atwill. So stay tuned for that. Bye, everybody, and talk to you soon.